On Sunday mornings, we've been going through Luke's gospel, and last week we got as far as Luke 19, verse 10. This morning we pick up in the 11th verse, and this next section will take us down as far as verse 27. Let me read Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. It says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, Jesus said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas. The idea is one each. And he said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. And then another came to him, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you do not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with an interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. To which they said, Master, he already has ten minas. For I say to you, to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Father, we ask this morning again just for your help that your Holy Spirit would prepare us. Lord, we realize that what we're looking at and studying is not just some book with black and white ink on a page that some man wrote, but Lord, what is inspired and breathed out by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, as he authored it, that he would now assist us to understand what it is, the intent and the thought and the message that you have personally for each one of us in this room this morning to hear from this portion of scripture. So Lord, would you prepare us? And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit's ministry, would powerfully and personally speak to every one of our hearts this morning. Bless your word, we ask, and teach us now. For we pray, believing you will, in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I have seen from my own life, as well as just evaluating the lives of others that I think one of the biggest struggles in our human nature is allowing someone else to be in charge of us. 
and allowing someone else to be in charge of us to the point whereby they may just simply and directly tell us exactly what to do and we can just humbly and cooperatively comply willingly without a problem. You know, internally, we all kind of chafe under that. Internally, I think we all, because of our innate, selfish, kind of stubborn and, and sinful disposition that we all have by nature, I'm preaching to myself like everyone else here, there's something within us that we wrestle and we struggle and we just naturally resist Someone else being in charge of us and telling us what to do. I mean, all you really need to do is to just even look at a small child. Once they begin to get a little mobility, usually around that one-year-old range, it becomes real obvious that their natural disposition to you as a parent is what they don't like you telling them what to do and what not to do. And they, it, to, to tell them no or don't touch this or don't go there. I mean, isn't it just astonishing to watch? You know, they, they just they tense up or they get angry or throw a temper tantrum. Why is it? What's the bottom line if you boil it down to? They don't like the fact that you're trying to say that you're in charge of them. They want to be in charge. They want to go where they want to go. They want to touch what they want to touch. They want to do what they want to do. And the fact that you would rule over them or be in charge of them, it just grates against that internal disposition that resists and chafes under and fights against the reality of someone else actually being in charge of them. Now, because of that reality, which truth be told, we may be a little more diplomatic in the way we conduct ourselves publicly, though we still don't like it. Many people never grow out of that. We still don't like people being in charge of it. You know, we may not throw a temper tantrum and act like an idiot in our workplace or in our home life or in front of other people, but the reality is we all struggle under this concept of someone else being in charge of our life. And because of that, for that reason, I think that though we will come to Jesus a lot more easily to be saved from our sin and to be saved from the, the condemnation of hell and eternal judgment, we want Jesus to save us from sin and save us from hell. But by the same token, we really struggle, many do, under the reality of allowing Jesus to be Lord and surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ and submitting to the mastery and lordship of Jesus Christ. For to allow Jesus to be Lord, listen to me, to allow Jesus to be Lord means that he reigns over me. It means that Jesus rules over me. It means Jesus is in charge of my life. I'm not in charge of my life. If I say Jesus is Lord, Jesus said, remember on one occasion, why do you say Lord, Lord, and yet you do not do the things that I say? He's saying there's a contradiction of terms there. Peter, remember in the book of Acts on one occasion, Acts chapter 10, 11 there, when the Lord tells him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. As he's having this vision, he sees unclean animals. And the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's trying to give him an indication that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And Peter makes this statement, not so, Lord, Wait a minute, that doesn't go together. You can't say in the same sentence, not so, and Lord. You can either say, not so, or you can call Jesus Lord. 
but the two don't go together. The lordship of Jesus Christ indicates that Jesus reigns over us. It indicates that Jesus rules over us. And because we naturally struggle with someone being in charge of us, many people are a lot more enthusiastic about Jesus, saving them from their sin, giving them eternal fire insurance. But it's a real struggle, isn't it? It's a real challenge for us to come to that place where we are supposed to whereby we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we don't just call him savior, but we abandon our rights and ourselves to his lordship and we let him be in charge of our life. And we comply with whatever he asks because see, that means that we forsake our rights. It means we give up control over every area of our life and it means that we allow him to be in complete charge. And this passage, if you noticed in its reading, clearly deals with, it's very obvious, the rulership or the reign of Jesus Christ. Both his reign over our life now as our master and the reality that literally one day Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is going to come back and he is going to reign on this earth. And he is going to set up his rulership literally upon this earth in his second coming. Look with me back in verse 11 as we go through this. It tells us, having heard these things again, we've been seeing many, Jesus, it says, spoke another parable. And again, the Holy Spirit tells us why he was speaking this parable. He spoke this parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought, this was their understanding, that the kingdom of God would appear immediately so again jesus is on his way to jerusalem he's with within a week now of his suffering and death and and, and crucifixion and resurrection so he's right at the end of his public ministry this will be his last trip to jerusalem and the holy spirit informs us the purpose of this parable look in verse 11 it says was to clear up a misconception a misconception that people had regarding the Lord Jesus' plans and intentions. He's nearing Jerusalem, and it says here that people thought upon his arrival to Jerusalem that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. We've talked about this before. The Jewish concept in their mind, the Jews' expectation was an immediate establishment of the throne and the kingdom of God upon the earth when the Messiah, when the Deliverer came. They thought that when the Messiah and Deliverer came, that immediately he would overthrow the Roman government and he would set up a literal throne and that he would reign upon the earth. As a result, they believed, if Jesus indeed was the Messiah, that he would and he should, and this was the struggle, that he should set up his throne right away in Jerusalem as God's Deliverer and rule as King. And understand, that plan really seemed like what was best. It really, from a pragmatic and logical perspective, it appeared to be what should be best for sure. That seemed like the right thing. That plan seemed absolutely excellent. However, guess what? Things were not going to go the way that people planned. Things were not going to happen the way that everybody in that day preferred. Instead, quite honestly, they had wrong impressions about Jesus. Their personal expectations of what they thought Jesus should do and what Jesus would do, their personal expectations were mistaken. 
They had a wrong impression. They were interpreting things incorrectly. And those wrong impressions about Jesus and his plan and his purposes are something that are going to lead them to a place of personal disappointment and would cause them to be off track if Jesus did not correct their perception. So as a result of that here, Jesus wants to correct this impression, it tells us in verse 11, of the fact that they thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately because the truth of the matter is it wasn't going to happen that way. There was going to be a gap of time between the first coming of Jesus when he suffered and died as a humble servant for our sins on the cross and the second coming of Jesus when he will return back to this earth to establish literally, he will then, the kingdom of God upon the earth and rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. But he was going to depart and be absent for a time. And there would be a space of time whereby he would depart, ascend back to the Father in heaven, and he was not going to set up the kingdom immediately. So Jesus wants to clarify this and encourage them that during his absence, there should be certain things that are taking place that they should be expecting his return and faithfully serving him until he comes back. Now, by way of application for us this morning, let me just say this. As I look at this, it reminds me of the truth of the matter that everybody at times in their life on occasion has wrong expectations and has mistaken ideas about what they think is going to happen in a particular situation. We can all be guilty of the same thing it says they were in verse 11. Sometimes we think things will happen in certain situations or we think things should happen a certain way in particular circumstances. And the reality is we may be completely off base. We all have the capacity to have wrong impressions and sometimes we think something is going to happen immediately or maybe that the Lord is going to do something right away and we even feel, don't we, we feel so sure of it and it seems so correct. It seems like this, this is the obvious right thing. This should happen this way. It, it, this is the, it's so clear. How could it not be? This is the way it has got to happen and this is the way it should happen or or we just tend to think it's going to happen and it's going to happen right away and the reality is that may not be in line with the Lord's plan. It may not be in line with the Lord's timetable or it may not be in line with the Lord's purposes and if we hold on to our wrong impressions or our mistaken perceptions about how we think things should go or will go, the tendency is, is we're probably going to get, on those occasions, pretty disappointed. And if we hold too tightly to those wrong impressions, we can even begin to get off course by doing or not doing certain things because of the way that we're interpreting them. And we can very quickly get off track. So Jesus wants to clarify wrong ideas so that we will be doing or not doing certain things and we can understand what the will of the Lord is. And we can submit... There's that part again that we can submit to his plan. And we can say, Lord, I I thought or it seemed like it was, but Lord, if it's not going to go that way, then show me. Because I want to submit to your plan and cooperate with that instead. So Jesus shares this story, we're told as we go into it, to enlighten people that he's going to be absent for a period of time. He's not going to set up the throne immediately. And he wants to counsel them some things that are going to happen during his absence before he returns back to the earth. And he's portraying here in this story his absence, that king going away, 
He's portraying here the attitudes and the actions of citizens and his servants during the time while he's away, what attitudes and different actions will be happening, and to show them that there is going to be future accountability for what people do during the absence of Jesus Christ in this time period between his first coming, which already happened, and his second coming, which is soon to take place. That there will be a future accountability as we face him at his return. He's trying to give proper perspective so that we'd live wisely and productively until he returns. Look at the story as Jesus begins to tell it in verse 12. He tells them the story saying, A certain nobleman went into, it says, a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered to them ten minas, one each, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens, again, different than the servants, the citizens at large, they hated him. So they sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. So as Jesus tells this story, the Jews listening would clearly relate to this because not to... Uh, recent prior to this time within a matter of about 30 years or so a historical event similar to exactly what Jesus is describing here had taken place among the Jews and a particular ruler we know in 4 BC Herod the Great died and when he died he had written out in his wishes that his sons were to take different territories and reign in his place and his son named Archelaus was given the reign over the area of Judea. And that was the intention and the wishes of his father, Herod the Great, that Archelaus would reign over Judea. However, uh, in protocol with the times of that day, Archelaus still needed to go up to Rome whereby he might rightfully receive his inheritance and they could validate and confirm his rulership Though it was his father's intention, it had to be validated and confirmed that he was indeed the rightful ruler of that territory. So as he makes his trip to Rome, a group of Jews who greatly despised and did not want this man to reign over their territory in Judea sent a delegation of about 50 men saying exactly the statement Jesus makes in verse 14. They said, going ahead to Rome, they sent messengers to Augustus saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And they went trying to reject his rulership. Now ultimately he still received his inheritance because it was rightfully his, and he did receive his kingdom and return back. But as Jesus is saying these things, they would be connecting the dots and relating to exactly the type of events that he was talking about because something historical had just happened. Notice as this king is away for a period of time, properly receiving the rightful reign to the territory his father had given to him, people become clearly divided in their responses to his upcoming reign and to the fact that he should reign. First of all, you see one group, the majority of citizens were told in verse 14, it says they hated him and they openly rejected his reign over them. Their attitudes are represented very clearly in their message in verse 14 of that delegation trying to thwart his rulership. Their attitudes were very clear. We will not have this man, it says, to reign over over us. In other words, they're saying we do not accept him as our king and we do not want him to rule over our lives. 
Now there was another group mentioned in verse 13 who are a smaller remnant it seems and they were referred to as his servants. And these were those who embraced this king's rightful rule and they submitted their lives to his kingdom and to its service. And to his servants, verse 13 says, he gave a share of his resources and he gave them each a responsibility to be actively engaged in during his absence until he returned. Verse 13 says he called his servants, not the citizens at large, those who had willingly submitted to his rulership, he called his servants and delivered to them ten minas and said, do business till I come. Now a mina was an amount of money equal to about a hundred days of a common laborer's wage. So figure in your mind about three months worth of salary. That's how much of a sum of money he gave to them. And take note, the exact same value of money, one mina each, about three months salary, the exact same amount of money is equally given to each one of the servants. A little bit different than the parable in Matthew chapter 25 where different amounts were given. Here, one of the distinctions in this parable is each one of the servants is given a completely equal share, an equal amount in what they are to use in business while their king was away. And that equal amount they were to manage and be responsible for and they're instructed, it says verse 13, with that equal share, each one gets the same instruction, very simple. He says, take this money and do business till I come. In other words, he's saying use this money wisely, use it efficiently, use it productively. This is your stewardship. And he's saying to them, I want you to put my resources to work. I want you to take what I'm entrusting to you and I want you to put it to work. I want you to be profitable with it. I want you to expand my kingdom and I want you to earn a profit and the desire of the master is that they would actively invest what was entrusted to their care and their management. And that they would use his resources to make forward progress and steps of advancement. The instruction was simple, but it was really very clear. The instruction of the king to his servants is, while I'm away, I don't want you to be sitting around being lazy. While I'm away, I don't want you to just sit around and be stagnant and do nothing. Instead, I want you to do the exact opposite. While I'm away, I want you to be diligent. I want you to be engaged. I want you to be active. I want you to be proactive in trying to turn a profit and to move things forward and to expand my kingdom and to increase my resources to a greater extent. He says, I want to receive back when I come more than when I departed. Again, the role of the servant was to remain busy and productive, not to be lazy, inefficient, and unproductive. The responsibility of each servant was to make progress, to be productive, and to move things forward and gain a profit in their labors. Now, in this story, it becomes pretty obvious that nobleman, in verse 12, is a picture of Jesus. Jesus being born of noble birth being the Son of God, born of a virgin, and Jesus who has now in this time gone away into heaven to receive the kingdom of God as the rightful inheritor because of what he did. What he did. And now he will one day come back and return after he receives the kingdom. So the nobleman is a picture of Jesus, the coming king. And as well, take notice, sad but true, verse 14 
the greater majority of people, unfortunately, are like those citizens in verse 14. Many, many people, not just dislike, they hate Jesus. Interesting, in John 15, Jesus makes this statement. He says, they hate me without a cause. And there are lots of people in our world right now that don't just kind of have a, you know, dislike towards Jesus. There's lots of people who they actually hate Jesus. Isn't it amazing how you can talk about anything else or you can talk about anyone else, but there, there's something that's so irritating to people when you mention the name Jesus. And there are people who passionately hate Jesus. And more than that, there are many people who just like these citizens who their attitude towards Jesus is, we will not have this man to reign over us. They may not say it outwardly, but the attitude of many, many people is they do not want to submit to the rulership of Jesus Christ over their life. Everything within them fights against and resists against Jesus being in charge of their lives. And that's their attitude towards God. That's their attitude towards Jesus. I, the, Jesus isn't reigning over me. I call the shots in my life. This is my life. I'm the captain of my own fate and the master of my own destiny. And most people who say that end up shipwrecked on the rocks of life. But lots of people, this is their attitude. We won't have this man reign over us. We don't want Jesus to be in charge of our lives. That's too constricting. We want freedom to do our own thing. Well, notice as well, for those of us who choose to follow Jesus as our master and as our Lord, verse 13 says that we are referred to as his servants and what are we told as his servants while he's gone? We're told that he's given to each one of us an equal stewardship, an equal responsibility while he is away and that stewardship is equally given to each one of us. Now what would that be? Something equally given to each and every one of the Lord's servants. Well, to me, it is a representation of the valuable treasure of the gospel. The message of salvation Granted, we all have different capabilities and abilities. Some are more gifted than others. Others of us have different resources and talents. And so, but one thing we all equally have had entrusted to us is the message of the gospel. We have equal opportunity, equal power, and equal availability to share the gospel that has been entrusted to our care, to manage. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.11, that it is the glorious gospel which has been committed to our trust. God has deposited to each and every believer an understanding of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How to be saved. If you are saved and you are a servant of Jesus, you understand the gospel and you equally can share the gospel like myself, like Billy Graham, like anyone else as a servant of the Lord. You have equal power and equal opportunity. And the exact same message is what we're all to share. 1 Corinthians 4 says, We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. What did Jesus say? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe the things that I commanded you. God has invested and deposited the gospel message in every one of our lives as his servants so that we would go out and find Zacchaeuses who are out on a limb in their life and who are lost and that we would seek them and share with them how they can be saved. 
And God has given that opportunity and that business to every one of us to invest the message of the gospel and to actively seek to expand the kingdom of God, to share its truths, to invite people and compel people to follow Jesus and to seek to utilize the spiritual gifts and enablement God has given us to share that business of eternal salvation and how to be saved with people around us in this world. And Jesus says to us as his servants, there's our instruction. See it in verse 13. Jesus says to us, do business till I come. Do business till I come. A Christian, while waiting for Jesus' return, should not be living a lazy life. There is no more contradictory testimony and example than a person who claims to be a Christian and follower of Jesus who's lazy. Paul spent an entire epistle correcting the Thessalonian believers who are basically saying, well, we're waiting for, we're just sitting around waiting for the Jesus. No sense to get a job. No sense to do anything. We're waiting for Jesus. We have an eternal perspective. And Paul said, you're being pseudo-spiritual. That's foolish. I'll tell you what. If people don't work, don't let them eat anymore. And Paul had to rebuke this wrong concept that a Christian should be sitting around passive and doing nothing. Paul said, no, a Christian should be eagerly engaging in the world, doing business, being involved and being engaged in this lost world, not being idle and unproductive, wasting time and wasting opportunities. No, we should be engaging in the world so that we could be interacting with the world in our job place and in our neighborhood and in our schools and actively in the world being productive and looking for opportunities to deposit the gospel by our witness and our words into other people's lives. So Jesus says here, our job, do business. Yes, expect my return, but he says, stay busy until I do return. Why? Verse 15, so it was. Notice, when this nobleman returned, having received his kingdom, he will come back. Then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man, notice, had gained by trading. So once this ruler returns, having received the kingdom, he now calls in all the servants who he had each entrusted an equal share of money, and he now brings them in, it says, to examine their stewardship during his absence. And he calls each one of them in and he's now holding them accountable for their personal stewardship. He's allowing them now to give report and he's going to render to each servant according what? To their faithfulness. According to their works with what he entrusted to them and what he instructed them. And whenever we're given a stewardship to be under the authority of someone else who entrusts us to do something, we should recognize if we're given a stewardship under the authority of someone else, it is the right, natural, and proper thing to ultimately be responsible for what we were instructed to do. This is the way it works in business. If somebody employs someone else in service and gives them an opportunity to serve in an employment capacity, it is proper for them to expect a return on what you do. That's proper. They've given you an opportunity. They're granting you an opportunity to utilize their resources and, and to use that in a profitable way. So it's a totally natural thing and rightful for a master to say, okay, I've given you an opportunity. What do you have to show for it? There should be something to show. Well, in the same way, since Jesus has entrusted us 
as his servants with the gospel message. And he has given us an instruction, do business till I come. Get out there and deposit that message in the world. Invest it because it will bring a return. Invest the message in the world around you. He's going to one day expect for us to give an account with what we did with the gospel message and how we used it for a profitable means to expand the kingdom of God. Notice verse 16, it says, They now begin to come in, and the first came, saying, Master, your mina has earned, he says, ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. And likewise he said to him, you also be over five cities. So in the story, Jesus next shows how they came being called in for their stewardship and how they begin to now give report to their master and how he then begins, notice, to reward them for their faithful service and for their good stewardship. Interesting to take note in verse 16 to 19, both servants here had different measures of success. But they don't get chided or rebuked for that. In fact, when you look at the story in verse 16 and in verse 18, two different individuals come and the first man is actually twice as profitable and twice as successful as the second servant that comes in. However, that being said, they both still fulfilled exactly what was commanded of them, which was to use the resources they were given and to go out to the best of their ability on their master's behalf and to do business with their master entrusted them and to gain some sort of some sort of an advantage and an expansion of what their master had entrusted to them. And though they had different measures of success, they both responsibly put to work what they were supposed to and they both turned a profit. And they both had something to show to their master and to give back to their master once he returned for what they had managed during that time. Now notice a few things. First of all, Notice the, the healthy perspective that these servants have in the story. Both of them say the same thing in verse 16 and in verse 18. They say, Master, notice the language, your mina has earned ten minas. Both of these servants did not become arrogant or feel somehow they had accomplished something. They said, Master, all we simply did was our job and it was your resources that produced more for you. Your mina has earned you 10 minas. We just did our job. They retained a humble, appreciative attitude towards their role and responsibility. And I like the language, your mina. It was your mina that did it. And you know what? Gang, there's nothing in us. It's his gospel. And it's his word. All we're doing is putting it out there. It's the word of God that has power. It's, it's the gospel message, the power of God that's unto salvation. It, 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 that's all. It's just putting it out there. And it doesn't matter how you put it out there. It doesn't say how one traded and how the different. All that matters, it's the, it's the mina. It's the word of God and the gospel itself that produces and has impact and accomplishes things when we put it out there. And notice as well in the story that productive and faithful service and good stewardship was rewarded. There was verbal recognition given. Well done, it says here. 
good servant and there was recognition and, and verbal praise as the Lord will give us recognition for our faithfulness. And also there was an opportunity for advancement because he says to both of them, you were faithful in a little. He says, verse 17, so therefore have authority over 10 cities. So greater opportunity, greater responsibility was given. Interesting, from God's perspective, faithful service is rewarded with more work. That's the way God works. God says, if you're faithful, here's your reward, more work. You get more work. You get more responsibility and greater things to do. They were equally rewarded in direct proportion. Now, as servants of Jesus, we are not intended to stand before the great white throne judgment described in the book of Revelation. That is a throne of judgment for the unbeliever, for those who have rejected and resisted Jesus Christ. However, as servants of Jesus, we still will appear before the throne of Jesus, the Bema seat of Christ, which is a throne of evaluation for what we did during our time as servants of Jesus. And we will be judged according to our works and rewarded in proportion to what we did do or what we didn't do. For how, in a sense, like an athlete, they would run their race and then they would come before the Bema seat in the, the uh, athletic games and they would receive their rewards. This person received first and second and third and they received, they were rewarded according to how they ran their race. And as a Christian, though we won't be appearing before God's judgment for eternal death or eternal life, that's settled the moment we come to Jesus. But there is a throne that you and I will still appear before as servants of Jesus where he will evaluate how we ran our race. And we will each receive proportionately according to how we lived our life for him and what works we did for the purposes of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 8 to 15 describes this. How when we come before the Lord, if what we've done was with good motivation and it was profitable and, and it's of gold and silver, when it undergoes the test of the fire, it'll be rewarded. It'll, it'll last and will be eternally rewarded. And he says, but yet there's others. They, they come before the Lord and not, life's nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. When the fire of Jesus' evaluation seeks to evaluate that, it says they'll be saved, but it's through the fire. In other words, some people... They're going to get into heaven and they're going to get into heaven smoking by the seat of their pants. Saved? Yes. Saved soul? Wasted life. And they're going to slip into eternity because they understood the concepts of salvation but there will be no reward. And what a bummer to be around the throne of God forever and ever in eternity as we're casting our crowns at the feet of Jesus as he gives us these crowns to cast at his feet as a part of the experience of worship in heaven and, and to have to sit there with a little beanie cap with a propeller on your head and going, boy, this is, can I borrow your crown just one time, one time? I just want to see what it feels like. I want to cast a crown one time, please. What a bummer. Serve Jesus. You will... You may not care now. I promise you, you will carry in eternity as you're rewarded and you receive those things because we will one day appear before our master as well. Well, look at verse 20. We see those who weren't so faithful. It says, then another came. In other words, here's a different representation. Uh, this servant came saying, master, here is your mina. He just gives it right back, which I've kept put away in a handkerchief. Hopefully a clean one, but... Put it away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, he says, but you are an austere man. The idea is you're somebody severe or very hard. 
You collect what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So finally here we see another servant who did not do what was asked of him, but instead, what did he do? He leaned on his own understanding and it seems to me that he kind of decided to make up his own rules. Is it not true he was given the same equal share as the other servants who were profitable and obedient? He was given the same equal share, the same opportunity, and the exact same command, do business till I come. And he was to go out and put to good use what his master entrusted to him in his stewardship. Instead, it says here, verse 20, that he put it away and he did not do anything with what was entrusted to him. Instead, he hid it away and buried it in safe hiding. As a result, what happens, verse 20 and 21, when he stands before his master, he had absolutely nothing. Nothing to show for it or give back except what he started out with. And now that mina for him represented wasted time. It represented disobedience and poor stewardship. And look at his reasoning for it in verse 20. One, excuse me. He says, For I feared you because you're an austere man. You're hard and severe. And in fact, he says, you're, you're even unfair. You collect what you don't even deposit. You come back and ask for more than you gave us. And you reap what you don't even sow. Notice that this servant had a wrong perception of his master. He didn't know his master very well. And because he didn't know his master very well, he didn't live very well. He wasn't a good servant because he didn't know his master. And you know what, as a Christian, if you don't know your master, you're not going to be a very good servant. This guy's concept of his master was all wrong. He, you know, some people have this concept, well, I don't want to do anything because I might mess up. Well, God is not this great big thou shall not in the sky with a hammer ready to strike people down. It's a shame that people have that concept. You know, the, the Lord wouldn't employ us to serve him and to be used by him if he thought that, that we weren't going to flub up and make mistakes and fail along the way. Are, are you kidding me? Do you really think God was looking for perfection when he hired me and you to serve him in his kingdom? If he wanted efficient service, he'd just use the angels. Or he would just do it all himself. He entrusts us wanting us to participate. And it's a shame when we have this concept where we're too afraid to do anything. Listen. Don't be afraid. Step out in faith. Try stuff for the Lord. Step out and do things. Don't have this concept of, of a wrong idea. In fact, this servant, really, he's almost blaming his errors and disobedience and lack of production on the master. He's blaming, well, because you're like this, that's why I didn't do anything. Truth of the matter is, he's ultimately just making excuses for his personal laziness and his disobedience. His excuses and his line of reasoning, his master is going to expose in the next few sentences and it shows you his reasons weren't reasons at all. They were just excuses as a cover-up for his own laziness and personal disobedience toward his master at that time. And this, of course, pictures what some Christians do in their responsibility to be serving Jesus Christ right now until he returns. This picture is what some of us do. Again, we have a wrong perception of Jesus and what he's like. And because of that, we never step out and try anything for the Lord. And we don't serve the Lord. And we sit around passive and idle. Or, or worse yet, we hide behind shallow excuses in our Christian life. Shallow excuses for our disobedience. Shallow excuses for our own personal laziness in the things of God. And 
you know, how many times I found myself to be guilty of that, or I see that in other people. Just the, you know, the most shallow, ridiculous excuses for why we don't read our Bible and pray, or or why we don't, you know, come to church, or why we don't serve. Oh, I'm just you don't understand. You, know, I just I'm just too busy. I just I just literally don't have time to read my Bible and pray. And we have an hour and a half to watch television, right? But we don't have 20 minutes to pick up our Bible and read it. it just, you see what I'm saying? Just, our excuses are just, they're ludicrous. They're really shallow, silly excuses. And it's almost a shame that we use them. You know, I don't serve the Lord. I'm just not talented enough. Or it just, we have the most foolish excuses. Well, you know, I, I really want to go to the prayer meetings. I really, I really want to go to midweek service. But my, my children have to go to bed early. And so I, but if they didn't have to go to bed early, I so want to be there. You know how many times I heard this in the prior pastor? Was, I so want to be there. Not that I ask, why don't you come? But I, I just want you to know, pastor, I so want to be there for midweek Bible study. But my children, they got to go to bed early. Well, I would love this because I would always wait till summer where there's three months that kids don't go to school. And I say, man, in summer, we're, we're going to have to put extra chairs out. And summer comes, no change. I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm just trying to be realistic. It's just excuses. We make the most silly, because if that was the thing, then, then all summer you'd be dying to be through the doors. You see what I'm saying? It's just, why do we, why do we bother making the excuses? It's a shame, and it's interesting to me, look what happens in the next few verses as this servant obviously was kind of blowing smoke. He said to him, verse 22, Out of your mouth I will judge you, wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man. Was it, you think that I'm severe and harsh, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow? He says, Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? At my coming then I could have at least collected it with interest. So he, he just totally exposes the foolishness of the reasoning of this man here and kind of just challenges him on that very thing. He's not only quite displeased and angry at his failure to do nothing, but he really kind of shows that he's upset with the reasoning he did as well. Notice he challenges it, exposing the error, saying, look, let's be logical here. If it's so true that you knew I was such a severe, austere, hard master then he says, that should have motivated you to at least do something sensible with my money. I mean, why wouldn't you at least take a conservative approach and at least put it in a bank so at least I could get a little interest when I came back? Again, think about it. To put money in a napkin and bury it in the ground, which is perishable, that was like the most foolish and irresponsible thing somebody could do. And he's just exposing again the reasoning and the excuse making and the point he's making is, look, you are simply making excuses. Call it what it is. You're making excuses. You're making excuses for disobedience. He says, you could have done something sensible if you really wanted to do something. And I love this because I so appreciate with Jesus that he does not buy into my excuses. Now, maybe you don't like that, but I love that about the Lord. You know, I'm an East Coast person, and one of the things I love about the East Coast is people are in your face, and they're honest, and they just tell you like it is. If you don't like me, just tell me. And I'll be glad to tell you the same. You see what I'm saying? I just, and I like about Jesus that he's just honest. And he just tells us. That's why I love to read the word of God. Lord, just tell me. Thank you for telling me I'm a jerk. Thank you. 
What's the next chapter have to say? And you're selfish too. You know, I, I, I appreciate that Jesus, he doesn't buy into our excuses. And here Jesus, he, he, the master, he just cuts through and he says, look, come on. Don't, don't give me this, I'm hard, that's why you didn't do it. You didn't do it because you were lazy. And you thought you had the right to make the own rules in your life. And you didn't do what I asked everyone else to do. And see, what was the problem? Here, here's my take on this. I think that servant, my perception, I think that servant, though he was a servant of the master, I think he was still really struggling with letting the master reign in his life. He was still struggling under the fact that somebody else was going to tell him what to do. And because of it, he decided, I want a little rights over my life still. So while the master was away, he kind of made up his own rules. Well, I just I know he said, do, do this, but I, I think I should do this. And he was struggling with the reign of his master over his life. As I said, many of us as Christians go through that wrestling and battle. Well, verse 24, the outcome, he said to those who stood around, take away this man's mina and give it to the man who has ten minas. For I say to you, verse 26, everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Take notice what happens. The master is very wise in his stewardship. So the master says here, look, I want my resources used efficiently. So therefore, what does he do? He sought to invest his resources where they would be utilized in the most efficient way. So he now retracts that mina from the lazy and unproductive servant and he gives it to a more efficient servant to use instead. Take notice of Jesus' principle. Everyone who has, that is everyone who has a productive, faithful attitude of good stewardship, everyone who has that, he says, more will be given to them. The reason? Because they put it to good use for God's kingdom. And Jesus says in the same way, everyone who does not have, that is who does not have a faithful spirit, a productive attitude, or isn't a good steward, Jesus says everyone who does not have that, they're simply wasting God's resources and opportunities, so therefore, that's going to be taken away from them. They're going to lose. And see, this is just a principle of life in many ways, but it's the same spiritually. It's like exercise, right? If you keep exercising, you keep gaining more and more. You make progress. If you stop exercising, what happens? Usually you don't just hold on to what you have. You usually start losing you lose and you go backwards. You lose stamina. You lose muscle mass. So the idea is progress is necessary to continue to receive more advancement and more advancement. And the same is true spiritually in our lives. Spurgeon said this. He said, we must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. We must make progress or else we lose what we have attained. And in spiritual life, if we're actively moving forward, we'll continue to receive. When we begin to retreat and draw back, the tragedy is sometimes we lose opportunity. We may even lose a role or a responsibility that we could have been effectively used in because we forsake it and God turns it over to someone else. Look at verse 27. Finally, it says, But bring here, lastly, those enemies who did not want me to reign over them. And he says, and slay them before me. So at the return of the master, when he established his throne, eventually, notice, he justly and severely dealt with those who rebelled and resisted his rulership. It tells us 
that they were brought in and because they stubbornly rejected his rightful reign they ultimately received a very severe judgment from his authority for their rebellion and the same is going to be true with King Jesus when he returns Jesus King of Kings Lord of Lords in love came to this earth humbled himself like a servant though he was the king died on the cross for our sins rose again and has ascended back into heaven at the right hand of the father and he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and he is coming back to this earth and he's going to reign and he is going to rule and when jesus returns to reclaim what is his he will hear me he will righteously and severely judge all those who have rebelled against his rulership in their lives he will the bible tells us in second thessalonians 1 that when the lord jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire he will take vengeance on those who do not know god and those who don't obey the gospel of the lord jesus christ and they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his power. See, to rebel against the rulership of Jesus is to invite, is to invite severe judgment upon yourself. Notice how Jesus quantifies those who are his enemies. Verse 27, those who did not want me to reign over them. Listen, Jesus is going to rule. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. The wise individual recognizes if he's going to rule, I ought to submit to him now. I ought to surrender to him now. Because ultimately, he will reign anyway. And listen, he's a good king. He's a really good king. And he's got way better plans for your life than you do. And he'll never lead you wrong or misdirect you. And you'll avoid the punishment of your rebellion. Hey, this morning, as we prepare to close in a final song, let me ask you a question. Where are you at this morning in relation to letting Jesus reign over your life? Maybe right now you're being a good and faithful servant and you're letting him reign and rule and you're kind of discouraged. Hey, you be encouraged, good servant. Because one day Jesus is going to say, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. And you're going to be rewarded. So you keep going. And you keep being faithful. Maybe you're here this morning and like this one who buried away and gave excuses. You may not say it outwardly and you know Jesus as Savior, but you're really struggling with the Lordship of Jesus in your life. And you're still inwardly resisting his reign over your life. And he's not Lord the way that he should be, and you know that. And you're still calling the shots. And you're still doing what you want to do rather than humbly bowing your knee in the throne of your heart to him. Can I encourage you this morning? That's only going to lead to regret. Resolve that this morning. When we sing this last song, say, Jesus, forgive me. I submit to you, Jesus. Reign in me again. Be Lord in my life. Be Lord in my life. Shall we stand? Let's pray together.